Well, good morning. Take your Bibles. Please turn along with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The words why and how are really important words. They're really important questions. Why helps us understand the purpose or reason behind some action or goal. How helps us to understand the means for accomplishing a goal. If you're going to accomplish something really difficult, it helps to know both the why and the how. The why helps us with motivation, and the how helps us very practically with implementation. If you tell me we're going to go and climb some great mountain, or even better, why not, since we're just hypothesizing here, we're going to go do all the 14ers together. Real quick, I'm going to be asking you, why? <laughs> what are we, Lewis and Clark here? But let's say that you convince me why we're doing this. Adventure, health, to build relationship, to accomplish a goal. Okay, type A. Then I'm going to need to know how. How are we going to do this? How am I going to get to the top of all these mountains? Well, then you're going to tell me that you're going to need to acquire some basic equipment, some basic knowledge. You're going to need to do some training. You're going to need to do some planning. To accomplish any great task requires understanding the why and the how. Our passage begins this morning in chapter 2 and verse 11 with a very simple but crucial word, for. F-O-R. For. This simple preposition for, which is the Greek word gar, simply communicates the reason for something. In this context, the word for is introducing us to the theological reason and rationale behind the ethical instructions that Paul has just shared in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. Paul has just finished explaining how older Christian men and older Christian women and younger Christian women and younger Christian men and Christian slaves are to conduct themselves as Christians in their various roles and contexts. And verses 11 through 14 provide both the why and the how of Christian living. This is the engine, verses 11 through 14 are the engine that drive Christian living. So let's look together. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For, connecting these verses with all that's gone before, for the grace of God has appeared 
bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." This is the word of God. Let us pray together. Lord, we ask for your help in understanding the importance of this passage and how it relates to what has gone before it and how it relates to our call to Christian living. Lord, we pray that we would understand both the why and the how of Christian living this morning. Lord, that we might be able to adorn the gospel in every respect, in our lives, in our relationships, in our responsibilities, that we would adorn the gospel, shine forth the gospel, the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to see this morning four life-transforming results From the appearing of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Four life transforming results from the appearing of God's grace in Christ Jesus. These results provide us with both the why and the how of Christian living. Paul follows up his instructions for each of these five groupings of Christians with both the reason and the ground for their changed lives. Paul is providing for us all in these verses the why of our transformed lives and the how of transformational living. So the first result life-transforming result from the appearing of God's grace in Christ Jesus is that God's grace in Christ has brought the offer of salvation to all people. And this is really good news. Paul begins explaining both the why and the how of our transformed lives by taking us back in time. Back in time to the first coming of the Son of God. Paul says the grace of God has appeared in verse 11. It has appeared bringing salvation to all men. The word Paul uses for appeared here is the word from which we get our English word epiphany. It refers to a light shining in an otherwise dark place. A light that dispels the darkness. It is a word that means to make manifest something that was previously hidden and unknown. It is to cause something that was shrouded in darkness to be gloriously known and splendidly visible. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, used this same word in reference to the promise of the soon coming of Messiah, of which his own son would be the forerunner. Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79, Zechariah says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, 
with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. And then he quotes from Isaiah 9 to, to shine, same word, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Those who were sitting in darkness will see a great light, an epiphany, a revealing. It is this same sense that Paul uses this word here. He will use this word in the same way again in chapter 3 that we read earlier in the service. Titus 3 and verse 4 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared came on the scene gloriously, visibly, brightly, shining forth, dispelling the darkness. Paul says here in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has been made manifest for all to see. The grace of God has made an epiphany, an appearing. And it's clear from the context that this appearance of the grace of God is in reference to the incarnation of the Son of God. In verse 14, Paul refers to the heart of God's grace for us in the incarnation. For Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. That is the incarnation. That is the appearing of the grace of God. God's grace in his unmerited favor. sent forth His Son. It is God's unmerited favor lavished upon wrath-deserving sinners. That's what grace is. God's unmerited favor lavished upon wrath-deserving sinners. Our sins had left us guilty before God. We deserved nothing from Him but judgment and eternal condemnation as His enemies. But instead of treating us according to the what our sins justly deserve, God is gracious toward us and provides for our complete forgiveness and total reconciliation to Him. This is what God's grace does. It gives us what we don't deserve. It offers it freely to all who will believe and accept it as His free gift. But God's grace is not just an action shown towards sinners. God's grace, first and foremost, is an attribute of who God is. God acts graciously because He is the God of all grace. Psalm 116.5 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. Aren't you glad that's true this morning? Where would we be without the Lord's grace? Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. God's grace is an aspect of His being. It's who He is. When God revealed Himself to Moses, it was this aspect of His grace that He emphasized. In Exodus 34.6, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That is our God. That is the God of the Bible. That is the God who's revealed himself in creation, in the scriptures, and supremely in his son, Jesus Christ. He is a gracious God. God's grace 
has made a glorious, brilliant appearance in time and space. God's grace came into the darkness of the world and illuminated it. We read that in John 1, verses 4 and 5. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 9, there was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. When you turn a light on in a dark room, it illumines everyone in that room. Whether they want it to or not. Whether they accept that light or not. Everyone can see the light. Everyone, in some sense, benefits from the light. Everyone, in some sense, is impacted by the light. And so it was for a manifestation of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. The true light. The light of God's grace, which came shining into the darkness of the sinful world like an epiphany. Jesus is not only the light of God's grace, but he is also the word of God's grace. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. The light of his glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the fullness of time, God's grace appeared among us. It was made manifest and it shone brightly in the darkness. And the result of this appearing of the grace of God in Jesus Christ was the bringing of salvation to all men. And so the grace of God appearing among men had a redemptive purpose for mankind. The appearance of God's grace that Paul is talking about here is nothing other than the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That He lived a sinless life. That He died as a substitute on the cross for sinners like you and me. That He went into the grave dead but rose again on the third day alive forevermore. And now all those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ find forgiveness and eternal life through the promise of God and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the gospel. The appearance of God's grace that Paul is talking about here is nothing other than that, the gospel. The good news of Jesus The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, what does that really mean? Does that mean that with the first coming of Jesus Christ, salvation has automatically come to every person who's ever been born? That can't be what it means. That can't be what Paul is getting at. The scriptures are clear. Paul is clear elsewhere. Paul is clear within this own letter that that's not what he means. Because not everyone is saved. Look with me at Titus chapter 1. Just flip the page if you need to. Verses 15 and 16. There was this problem within the churches around Crete. There were these false teachers that had crept in secretly and 
somehow gotten positions of authority within the church and they were teaching and they were leading and they were counseling and they were doing all kinds of stuff. But they were unbelievers. Titus 1, 15 and 16, To the pure all things are pure. To those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Does that sound like a Christian? Does it sound like a believer? Does that sound like someone who's been impacted by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? No. So it's clear that not everyone's saved. This is not the automatic default position of humanity. That is not what Paul is teaching here. So what does bringing salvation to all men mean? It means this, that Jesus came and brought salvation to all people without distinction, but not without exception. This means that Jesus came and brought the offer of salvation to all people, regardless of their sex, their race, their ethnicity, their nationality, their social status. Whether they're older men or older women or younger women or younger men or slaves even. God is not a respecter of persons. And His grace was made manifest in Jesus Christ in order that the free offer of salvation might be made to all people regardless of who they are, where they come from, or what they're all about. The point Paul is making here is about the sufficiency of God's grace in Christ's sacrifice and the scope of the offer of salvation. The offer of salvation goes out to all mankind because the sufficiency of Christ is sufficient for all mankind. Christ's sacrifice is able to save all who will believe and trust in Jesus Christ. The offer of salvation then is a genuine offer to all. But only those who receive God's gracious offer through faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. That's good news, beloved. It's good news today. The offer of salvation goes out and it's going out again today, right now, to you. God in His grace has manifested His grace in space and time by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life you and I could never live, a life of perfect righteousness and holiness, a life that satisfies a righteous Father. You and I can't live that life, but Jesus lived it. Jesus, having lived that perfect life, went to the cross and died an atoning death, a substitutionary death for you and for me. Jesus died and was buried and rose again the third day. And now God in His grace offers you salvation and eternal life if you will believe on His Son, Jesus, for salvation. Not trusting in your works, not trusting in the good that you've done, not trusting that the good will outweigh the bad, not trusting that you're better than most people, not trusting in any of that. Because that's not good news, that's not the gospel. That's salvation by works, by human effort. Salvation is all of God's grace, unmerited favor shown toward wrath-deserving sinners. 
Jesus offers you that salvation today by his grace, if you'll but receive it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's good news, beloved. That's the first result. Secondly, we see that God's grace in Christ continually instructs us to deny sin. The appearance of the grace of God in Jesus has not only brought salvation to all who will believe, but that same grace in Christ acts as our instructor, our discipler. Look with me at verse 12. The grace of God has appeared, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The appearance of the grace of God in the incarnation of Jesus instructs us. The word used here for instructing is a word from which we get our English word pedagogy. The idea is formation, forming a person into a whole person. That's what instructors do. That's what teachers do, good ones. They're concerned with the whole person, not just with the mastery of certain knowledge, but with the formation of a person. It's a word that referred to the work of a parent or a pastor in training up a child or in training up a congregation. This kind of instruction certainly includes teaching, but it also includes guidance and correction and discipline and modeling. So God's grace manifested to us in Jesus Christ not only has a redemptive purpose, but it has a reforming purpose. God's grace in Christ Jesus reforms us continually, instructs us, shapes us, molds us. It not only has a saving purpose, it has a sanctifying purpose. It not only has a future purpose, but it has a present purpose. The gospel, the good news of God's grace manifested in Jesus Christ And his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave has an ongoing instructive purpose in our lives. And the word instructing is in the present tense. That means it's ongoing. It's continual instruction. As Christians, we're continually instructed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, what does this appearing of God's grace instruct us to do? Well, as we will see, there is both negative instruction and positive instruction. We're instructed on what not to do, and we're instructed on what we should be doing. First, it instructs us in what not to do. God's manifested grace in Jesus instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Ungodliness is a general term used to refer to anything that fails to honor God. It encompasses everything that raises itself in opposition to God. From the greatest act of high-handed rebellion to the most subtle forms of sin. As Jerry Bridges would say, 
even the respectable sins. The manifestation of God's grace in Jesus teaches us to deny this ungodliness that still tempts us. Ungodliness at its core is the failure to acknowledge, obey, and honor God for who He is. But with the appearance of God's grace in Jesus and through faith in Jesus as the Son of God, we are now instructed by the gospel to deny, to denounce, and to reject all forms of ungodliness. The gospel instructs us to say no to that stuff. Next, we're also instructed by God's grace manifested in Jesus to deny, to denounce, and to reject worldly desires. Worldly desires are desires that are characteristic of this fallen world and all of its fallen systems. Worldly desires include the heart sins of greed, envy, pride, lust, and all their sinful manifestations. God's grace manifested in Jesus, that is the gospel, continually instructs us to deny, to denounce, and reject ungodliness and worldly desires. So that's the first part of the instruction. It's what not to do. It's the stuff to stay away from. And the gospel instructs us toward that. Thirdly, God's grace in Christ continually instructs us to live righteously. To live righteously. Not only does God's grace manifested in Jesus teach us what not to do, but it also instructs us on what we should be doing. God's manifested grace in the gospel instructs us positively to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Three positive instructions. Two negative, three positive First of all, God's grace instructs us to live sensibly. The word sensibly has shown up five times already in this letter. Every grouping of Christians that Paul has just addressed since chapter 2 and verse 2 has been called to be characterized by sensible living. And being sensible was a necessary qualification for anyone who would serve as an elder. We saw that back in chapter 1 and verse 8. The word sensible means simply to be self-controlled. It means that you're to manifest a mental focus and an emotional stability, a life that isn't characterized by impulsivity or erratic instability. Instead, the Christian is to manifest a life of determined focus, of emotional balance, of moral self-restraint. It's to be able to keep your wits about you, to stay level-headed and even-keeled, and to maintain control over your appetites and desires. The gospel instructs us to be sensible, to be sober, to be sober-minded. Next, we see that the gospel of God's grace instructs us to live righteously. It means to live uprightly. It is to live with a love and concern for justice and truth.
The third positive instruction of the manifested grace of God is that we would live godly lives. It's the opposite of that negative trait that we're instructed to avoid, and that's ungodliness. Avoid ungodliness and pursue a godly lifestyle. A lifestyle of devotion to God, of seeking to honor Him and obey His Word. These three positive Christian instructions form a triad of Christian graces. Living sensibly or being self-controlled has reference to ourselves. Living righteously or justly has reference to loving our neighbor well. And living godly has reference to pursuing God. Christian conduct is therefore properly inward, properly outward, and properly upward. These three positive instructions are given in order that we might live transformed lives in the present age. In other words, the gospel doesn't just have the power to save us from the future wrath of God, but to sanctify us and set us apart from the present evil world. So the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves us, but it sanctifies us. And it sanctifies us by continually instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now how does the grace of God manifest to us in Jesus Christ and His gospel both save and sanctify us? Well, by causing us to be born again. By making us new. When God begins His work, He begins on the inside. It's an inside job. He starts inside the Christian, making us new from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. You're new, Christian. The old things, the old ways of thinking, the old ways of living, the old ways of acting have passed away. And behold, new things, new ways of thinking, new ways of living, new ways of acting have come. Do you believe that, church? It's true. God's grace has not just appeared in Jesus' first coming. But His grace has continued to appear to us through the indwelling of Christ within each of us as Christians, through the Holy Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus dwells in you through the Spirit, empowering you to live a new life, to live as an older Christian man should, to live as an older Christian woman should, as a younger Christian woman should, as a younger Christian man should, as a Christian employee should. You've got everything you need. Because of the grace of God manifested to us in the gospel, we have the very power of God working in us and for us transforming us from the inside out so that we live differently than the world around us. And in this way, we adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect and in every, every facet of life and in every relationship. 
Fourth and finally, God's grace in Christ continually causes us to look forward to Christ's second coming. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. God's grace manifested in Jesus Christ causes us to not only renounce sin and live righteously, but also causes us to be looking for the arrival and fulfillment of the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. The reality and power of the first manifestation of the grace of God in Jesus causes us to look with grateful and eager expectancy for the second manifestation of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. The truth and transformation of the first coming of Jesus causes us to longingly look for and eagerly await the second coming of Jesus. This second coming of Jesus is here called the blessed hope. Christian, do you have a blessed hope this morning? That's good for four of you. Christian, (laughs) hey, Christian, do you have a blessed hope this morning? Whether you realize it or not, you do. It is a smiling hope. It is a joyful hope. It is an optimistic hope. A hope that is sure to come to pass. A hope that isn't a wish or just a desire, but a hope that is a settled certainty. It's not the kind of hope that says, I hope it doesn't rain tonight at our event, barbecue and bikes. But it's the hope that says, my hope is in God and in His unfailing promises. It's not a wish. It's a certainty. This blessed hope is further described as the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. The blessed hope and the appearing are one and the same. These aren't two different things. The blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, the blessed hope is Christ himself. It's not even an event. It's that Christ is glorious and worthy and deserving and his promises are true. And yes, he's coming back. He is our blessed hope. His appearing is what we're looking for. The Christian's blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Jesus' first coming was a manifestation of the grace of God. Jesus' second coming will be a manifestation of the glory of God. Jesus is here described as our great God and Savior. This is one of the clearest declarations in all the scriptures of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is here called our God and Savior. That's not referring to two different people. It's not referring to God the Father in the first instance and our Savior is Jesus Christ. But it's one and the same person as God and Savior. And this person is said to be Christ Jesus. 
say, well, how do you know that? Well, there's a Greek grammar rule that is present here called the Granville Sharp rule. And the upshot of it all is that God and Savior here have to be referring to the same person. So Paul is declaring that not only is Jesus the Savior, but Jesus is God. And that's how he is the Savior. He can't be the Savior unless he's also God. And he is. The Apostle Peter made the same exact declaration using the same grammatical construction in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. You can look that up later. Looking expectantly for the return of Christ is what Christians do. We look for it. We wait for it. We long for it. We pray for it. We say along with Paul, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And this blessed hope, this eager expectation, this watchful waiting produces a greater longing for Christ-likeness now. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God and has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we'll see Him just as He is. That's where we're headed, folks. We're headed for Christ-likeness. Perfect Christ-likeness. Isn't that good news? But we don't just wait. We wait and we work. For it continues, 1 John 3, 3, And everyone who has this hope, the hope of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. This longing, this expectancy has a purifying effect on the Christian's heart. Why? Because it orients us to our North Star, to the way things really are. To what is true and what is valuable and what is beautiful and what is good. Having mentioned Christ Jesus as our great God and Savior who's going to return in glory. and Paul then, verse 14, wonderfully summarizes the gospel. Look at verse 14. Our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for us as a gift to us. No one took his life from him. Jesus says, I have authority to lay it down or to take it up. Jesus laid it down for us. He gave himself for us. This is the language of substitution. He took our place. It's the language of atonement. He gave himself for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange. All because God gave himself, Jesus gave himself for us. The purpose of his giving of himself for us was that we might be redeemed. The purpose of the cross was redemptive. 
to purchase us out of our slavery to sin and death and judgment and to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purchase our pardon and secure our forgiveness once and for all. So the cross of Jesus not only secured our salvation, but it also secured our sanctification. Amen? Jesus gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Let me ask you, is that have a focus on heaven or is that a focus on here and now? It's not a trick question. Here and now. It's about now. He's purifying for himself a people among all the peoples of the world. A people who identify themselves with Jesus Christ and call themselves Christians. A people who increasingly look like their Savior, Jesus Christ. A people who are like Jesus, zealous for good deeds, doing good to all. The power of the cross not only saves us, but it also sanctifies us. We who were once not a people, we who were once like sheep scattered and going astray, have now been gathered at the foot of the cross, and our faithful shepherd has laid down his own life for his sheep in order to not only save us for eternity, but to sanctify us in the present. And these purified people of Jesus' own possession are now zealous for good deeds. Let me ask you, are you a good deeds zealot? You get excited about doing good for others. That's a fruit of the work of God in your life. It's a fruit of the grace of Christ in your life. You've been saved. You and I have been saved and left here for a reason. And that is to testify with our lives, with our words, with our deeds of the transforming power of the gospel. A gospel that we adorn and take with us wherever we go. A gospel that we seek to attractively and winsomely manifest in our lives so that others can see its transforming effect. A gospel that transforms you as an older man into a person who is temperate and dignified and sensible and sound in faith, in love and in perseverance. A gospel that transforms you as an older woman into a person who is reverent in behavior and not a malicious gossip, not enslaved to wine, but a teacher of what is good, teaching younger women how to live God-pleasing lives. A gospel that transforms you as a younger woman into a, a younger woman who loves her husband and who loves her children, is sensible and pure and devoted to her home and submissive to her own husband. A gospel that transforms you as a younger man into a person who's sensible, an example of good deeds in purity and doctrine, dignified and sound in speech. A gospel that transforms us as employees 
into people who are submissive to our supervisors at work, who seek to be well-pleasing to them in the way we do our work, without being argumentative or stealing, but showing all good faith as faithful stewards, trustworthy employees. Living these transformed lives allows us to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. To adorn the gospel in every conversation, every action, and in every interaction. How is this all possible? It's possible because of the gospel. Look again, verse 11, the first word, for. You see, this changes everything. This makes it all possible. This gives you the reason why and the how to do it. It's possible because of the cross of Christ. Because of the cross of Christ, the gospel provides both the why and the how of the Christian's transformed life. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the peering of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for supplying us with the why and the how of transformed living. The why is because Jesus has come and he is a manifestation of the grace of God and that has changed everything. And the how is found in the same answer. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Resting in the grace of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, and employing the power of Christ in us. Lord Jesus, we know you're coming back. Forgive us for being short-sighted and sometimes being distracted and failing to look forward to expectantly, eagerly, anticipating your return. For we know that has a purifying effect on us when we do. Help us, Lord, to reorient our lives and look forward to the blessed hope, and the glorious appearing, the glorious epiphany, the glorious second coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do your transforming work in our lives, Lord. We yield ourselves to you. Lord, if anyone here is not sure if they're a Christian, the free offer of the gospel goes out again. The grace of God has appeared offering salvation to all men. All men, women, boys and girls. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and you'll be saved. Thank you, Jesus, for your promise. And thank you, Jesus, for your power. In Christ's name we pray, amen.